Let me pray for us. God, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather, uh, to think about your word together, and um, to know you better, really. Um, that's our desire, and we're thankful that you um, promise that when we seek you, you will be found, that you um, are quick to reveal us, reveal yourself to us. Um, when you give us a heart that wants you, wants you, you fulfill that desire. And so we are thankful for that promise, for that hope. And we pray that you'd instruct us, you'd teach us from your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how might you summarize what God would expect of Israel based on what we've seen so far? What are some things that might fit into what God would expect of Israel? Obedience. Obedience, yeah. That's right. To love him. Love him, yeah. So, so not just mere external motions of obedience, right? But a heart-generated true obedience. That's right. Yeah, so what does that obedience look like? How do they know what obedience looks like? They're just supposed to kind of make that up. It's kind of how they feel. I mean, that's how most people do it today, right? Well, this is what I think God wants. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah, they, so they have the law, right? So they're under the old covenant. So specifically, that's laid out for them in the old, well, we refer to it as the old covenant. That would have just been uh, the covenant given on Sinai to them, right? Um, so the, the Mosaic law, the, the law given through Moses, right? I mean, God directly tells the people and then has Moses go up to the mountain and God writes it down and gives him the Ten Commandments to take down in writing to the people. So God gives this uh, this law, this Mosaic law to them. And uh, so we have the Ten Commandments and then we have a bunch of other details of how that might get worked out in their everyday life. And all of this is so that the holy God can dwell among his holy people without destroy, destroying them. Because if they weren't holy, they'd be destroyed. They have to be set apart to him. Right, And so, so the whole law is showing them what that's going to look like, including sacrifices, which deal with when they fail, because they do and will fail. Um, there needs to be sacrifice. And all of this, in the grand scheme of the story, is pointing to how God is going to uh, make himself a holy people through Christ, ultimately, that will dwell in the fullness of his perfected place forever, right? So God's people will be in God's presence uh, under God's perfect rule forever, that's where it's going. That's where the storyline of the Bible begins. That's where the storyline of the Bible ends, right? And in between there, we have redemption, where sin comes into the story, and then sin is dealt with. Um, we see it in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We see it, the pinnacle of it in Christ coming, and we'll see the full consummation and resolution of it when Jesus returns, right, to bring final and full judgment. So, um, so, that, so really what we're seeing today is specifically zooming in on this question. You'll even see at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 12, so we're, that's where we're beginning today, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, um, it says, and I'm just going to mention this now, we'll come back to it, but it says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? That is what he's answering here, but it's really what's been answered prior to this as well. So in some sense, this is kind of a summary, bringing it together, um, call for action is really what you have happening in this section, right? This is the application of what we've, we've seen. So that's what's going on here. So just a reminder of the context in Deuteronomy. I gave you the big picture context of the Bible, but in Deuteronomy, we have, um, where are the people at right now? Where, where are they located? And why does that matter? Page Jordan. Yep, so they're on the Transjordan, which means other side of the Jordan, and that other side refers to other side of where the promised land is that they're going into, right? And so why does, why does that make a difference for what's happening in Deuteronomy? They're getting ready to go in. Yeah, they're getting ready to go into God's place, the place God has for them, right? And the previous generation didn't get to go in. Why? Because 
Yeah, they disobeyed. They rebelled against God, right? Um, they rebelled right away, by the way, right? I mean, they, while the, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is being written, they're downstairs, so to speak, right? Committing idolatry. Um, and it's interesting, what, what does God appeal to when they do that? Or what does, I'm sorry, Moses appeal to when he intercedes for the people? It's actually not the Mosaic covenant. He appeals to the Abrahamic covenant, which is interesting when you keep going through the Bible and you get to Galatians, Paul says that old covenant was purposeful, it was designed, it was for the good of the people, it pointed ahead, but it didn't nullify the Abrahamic covenant. He says that, right, in Galatians. He says the law that comes along hundreds of years later does not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and then we get to the new covenant and we have the, the, the completeness of that old covenant is done away with, it's done, and we have the new covenant in Christ. Now, there are still promises from that Abrahamic covenant to be had, and in fact, their new covenant's really pretty connected into that in, in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, so getting a little bit off track here, the point is these people are standing outside the land. They're about to go in. The previous generation, their parents had failed because of rebellion. They need to hear, what does God require of you? And that's what Moses has been saying to them. He, this is a series of sermons where Moses is going through basically the old covenant, the law, and he's saying, remember who God is, remember what God said, remember where God's taking you, be careful to do what God says. Don't be like the generation before, right? He's getting them ready for that. And so right now, the, fir the first speech gives some history. Second speech, which is what we're in right now, he's really zooming in on the covenant requirements. And um, this section that we're finishing today will finish the, um, I would say, the first half or first part of that second sermon, where he's really going, he's going after the main point. What is the big picture of what God wants from you? And then what he's going to do in the next section that we'll start in the new year, Lord willing, is he's going to start this, some specific detailed laws about what it's going to look like to live this out in the land. Because they need to know that. They're about to go in the land, right? So um, that's, that's where we're at right now. And in today's passage, we find the main requirement is wholehearted obedience to the law of God, to God's ways. So you can see kind of a layout there, a handout of where we're going. Uh, we're going to see in verses chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, what God requires. Then we're going to see um, in verses 14 through 22, there's this desire for wholehearted obedience. That's what's required. And it's required because of who God is. Then we're going to see it's required because of what God has done. In other words, these are motivations to do what God says, which is keep, keep his way, keep his law. These are the motivations, who God is, what he's done, and then um, where he's taking them, right? The future. So that's, that's kind of uh, the layout. So you can kind of think of it in terms of, and this is true for us too, by the way, right? What should motivate us to obey the new covenant commands and stipulations? Who God is and, and what he's done and where he's taking us, right? Who God is, the past and the future affect the present. That's what you see. Okay, so let's, we're going to zoom in here. Any questions though up to this point about where we've been in Deuteronomy or where we're going? Good. All right. Well, let's look at uh, verses 12 and 13. And here we're going to see what God requires, wholehearted obedience. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So it begins with this, and now. So after a recitation of, of what God has done, because that's what he's been doing in the previous chapters and things like that, he says, uh, you need to come to this point of, 
realizing this is what God requires of you in light of who he is and what he's done for you, in light of your relationship with him, this is what he requires. And it's, it's spelled out for us in a series of five commands. I don't know if you noticed that, but there are five command words in those verses we just looked at. Um, and, it to, and the summary, I would say, so if you walk away with one thing, it is wholehearted obedience to God. That is the summary explanation of what these five commands are, okay? Um, in some ways, these are just five ways of, of saying um, um, different, uh, differently the same thing. I mean, kind of the same thing in different ways. It's, um, one commentator says it's kind of like five notes that make up one chord. There's a distinction between each of those notes, but they are all related to each other in this chord. They all fit together, right? Um, you could think of it in terms of this way, in terms of attitude and action. So they give you these five commands, but the five commands, we could break them down into, you have to have the right attitude towards God, a love towards God, a fear towards God, and you have to have the right actions towards God, keeping his commandment, walking in his ways, right? Um, so what are the five commands? You can see them. I laid them out there for you. The five things are fear the Lord. So to fear the Lord, we think of the idea of a reverential awe, right? A, um, a, a, a great fear of disobeying him. That's what we mean when we talk about fear as well. There, there's a fear of disobeying God. Or we might say it the opposite way to say that is a strong desire to please him. We have a strong desire to please him such that we, we, we fear disobeying him. We want to avoid disobedience. Uh, there's walking in his ways, right? So uh, when you think of walking, you think of a path. You think of staying on that path, right? Um, you, you think of um, a direction in life. And so we want to stay on the path God made. We don't want to turn off and wander into our own ways. Uh, the, your, your overall course of life is one that fits with what God says is good and right. That's what I mean when we talk about this course, this walking uh, love would be the idea of loyal living for God, um, a loyal commitment to God, a, uh, a joy that comes from uh, knowing God and desiring to please him. That's what we could t- be talking about when we talk about loving God, uh, valuing God. That's part of loving him, right? When you love something or someone, it's because you recognize a value to it. So there, there's a, a recognizing God's value. Then serve the Lord. This has the idea of a devotion to do what he says. It also carries the idea of worship. Service can also be used in referring to worship. So worshiping God alone. I think that's what we're talking about here, being devoted to doing what he said. And then keep the commandments and statutes. In other words, his word is the rule for our life. We do what he says. We do what he commands. So again, you you get the idea here. We're talking about wholehearted obedience. That really is the summary of all those commands. Those are just different ways of kind of saying the same thing a wholehearted obedience to God. It won't do just to do the external things. There's got to be a wholehearted devotion and love towards God. It won't do to just say, well, yeah, I love God, but then not do anything he says, right? That's not, you don't love God if you say that and don't care about that. Now, we all struggle in our love for God. We all fall short, but a true Christian is somebody who, what marks them is they're sorry about that, and they ask God to help them. That's the difference. And so... um, that, that's where we're going. Now, now these, these things get played out over and over again. So, so this idea of fear and walk and love and serve and keep, these ideas get played out over and over again. I'm just going to read a couple verses for you in this section. So chapter 10, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Chapter 11, verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Verse 8 of chapter 11, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. 
Verse 13, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then he goes on and explains what's going to happen. Verse 22, for if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him. Verse 32, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Do you, do you get the point? That I, if, so you should, the, the big picture here is pretty clear, right, as to what we're talking about. It just keeps beating that drum over and over again. Um, and the heart, that, that, that heart focus gets repeated over and over again as well. You saw it in some of those verses. Um, I, if you look at chapter 10, verse 12, you see it pretty clearly right there, right? He talks about with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he, he's going to talk about with all your heart a couple times in this section. Um, and just to be clear, when we talk about your heart, because I've said that a couple times, it's, it's heartfelt, wholehearted, things like that. Um, what do we mean by the heart? Well, we mean the internal person, right? You are a physical, spiritual being. That is what God has made you to be. You have a body, you have a soul, right? That's, that's the reality of what it means to be made human um, right now. Um, and, as, and that will also be true in the resurrection life, right? We will have resurrected bodies, uh, the intermediate state will be a little bit different, right? We'll die, we'll be with the Lord, but we won't have resurrected bodies just yet. But the point is that's God's design for us. Um, so the heart is the, is the internal person. It's where your desires are, your affections. That means your things you love, things you hate come from, that, that desire. Uh, your will, your thinking, uh, your, as I tell my kids, your wanter sometimes, right? I think your wanter has gotten out of control. What are you saying? Your, your internal desire for something. That, that, is, that is part of the heart, so we're not talking just physical beating heart, right? We're talking the internal person, right? So with, with all of that internal person, with all of your soul, you are to love God and seek to obey God. And that works out through your body, right? Your, what you do with your body, your hands, your feet, your mind, all these other things um, affect that. So that's, that's what the main point is. And notice it's, um, when, if you're doing this, it is also when you keep the commandments of God, who, who is that good for? Yeah, for your good. So he gives you all these commandments, and what does he require of you but to keep them wholehearted obedience to what he commands for your good? It is for your good. Um, and I, th I think we have to realize that um, wholehearted obedience to God is not opposed to what is good for us. Those two, God has designed it such that those two things go together, which makes sense because if God is really God, he is the best person in the universe. So anything he says is going to be right and good for us to do. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't lack wisdom. Well, you know, I, I think this is the best thing to do. I'm just not really sure, but just go ahead and try it and let's see what happens. No, he has all wisdom, right? Um, he exerts his power for what is righteous and good because he's a good God. So he's got all power. He's got all goodness. All these things come together to mean that when he commands us something, it is ultimately for our good. So an application is, do you believe that? Think about it, most of, well, really, all of your struggle and my struggle with sin is to believe that reality, that what God says is actually for my good. Because when I sin, essentially what I'm saying is, I don't really think that right now. I think this is what is for my good, what you've said no to, right? So, so really, this is the struggle of faith, isn't it? This is what faith is struggling to do, which is believe that God is really good and that what he says is good and therefore do what he says. That's what faith is doing. And, and that's where we need to find connection to God is through believing that this really is for our good. 
Um, it's like C.S. Lewis talks about, to paraphrase him, right? He talks about too often we would rather exchange the, uh, the cruise in the Mediterranean for playing in mud puddles outside because we just have no category for what true goodness is, right? We, 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 think, we think this is really the good life. I mean, sure. I mean, maybe temporarily it is, but if you compare it to the cruise in the Mediterranean, I mean, some of you hate cruises, I get that, but if you love cruises, um, I mean, no comparison here, right? And so we need to believe what God says. So to summarize it, God requires wholehearted obedience from his people, and this is good for them. That is what he's been saying, and that's what he's going to really put a point on in these, this section, chapter 10, verse 12, through the end of chapter 11. Okay, so um, the rest of this, this section then, he's going to reiterate those commands. I just showed you that. He's going to keep hammering home, keep, obey, do, serve, those type of things. Uh, and he's gonna, but what he's going to do is he's going to give reasons. This is why this is good and why you need to do this. This is why it's for your good. Uh, remember this. You know, here's, here's uh, why you need to do what I'm telling you to do. So we're going to look at those. Um, any questions so far? Comments? Would you agree? Is that your, is that your greatest problem? Is to believe that God is good when he gives us something to do? Right? I mean, sometimes it's we need, we need to grow in our knowledge. We need to know. That's true. Especially when you're, when you're a new Christian, there's a lot to learn, right? When you're an older Christian, there's still a lot to learn. But the, the more you grow, the more it just becomes about believing what God says is good and doing it, right? All right. Well, let's go on then. Um, next section. Keep his commandments because of who God is. So this is verses 14 through 22. And in this section, we're going to see God's character as the fundamental reason for, uh, the, to be motivated for wholehearted obedience. God's character is put on display here. And so a quick word of application, uh, it's, it is always good to start with who God is, God, thinking about God's character to motivate you to obey God and even help you see what obedience to God looks like. So uh, that's true in the new covenant as well. So let me just remind you, I mean, spend time getting to know more and more of God's character. If you want to have wholehearted obedience to God, you've got to know more and more of who God is. And, that, and the more you know him, the more you're motivated to want to obey him because the more you see how good and, and gracious and uh, righteous he is. So the more you're motivated towards fearing him and loving him. So we always want to start with understanding more and more of God's character. Well, he's going to start here by talking about God's love. Um, look at verse uh, 14. Behold, to the Lord, uh, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Okay, so stop right there. What is he saying right there? What's if you just have to give a short synopsis? What is he saying? Everything belongs to God, right? Everything. Um, the Psalms talk about you know the, the the heavens, the earth, what's under the earth, uh, all the cattle on a thousand hills. The whole point of that is everything belongs to God. He made it all. He owns it all. Everything. Verse fifteen. Yet. So it's kind of a contrastive idea, right? He owns it all, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. So who's your fathers? Israel. Yep, Israel, but specifically Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Um, He set his love on your fathers, on these individuals, and chose their offspring. So in them, he chose this nation, this, this offspring, Israel, after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So here's the logic. Verse 14, God owns everything, the highest 
of heavens. He owns everything. Verse 15, yet he set his love, a specific focused love on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through that to you, Israel. Verse 16, the result, therefore, here's what you should do. The right response would be to have hearts that are circumcised. You need a heart that is not stubborn towards God. If God has shown this sort of love in making you his people as a nation, then it won't do to have a stubborn heart towards him, right? Your heart has to be pliable towards God, receptive towards what God says. That would be the right thing you should do. So let's break it down just a little bit more. So he, uh, he set his heart in love on your fathers. That's pretty amazing. Um, was it because they were um, just super great folks who were religious and seeking the one true God? No, what was Abraham doing? He was an idol worshiper, right? I mean, he's not seeking the one true God. Um, God sets his love on Abraham, and through him, you continue down that chain. Um, it was not because of their might. Israel isn't loved by, isn't chosen by God to be his nation because they're so mighty and strong. Uh, he's said that earlier. I think uh, maybe it's just the section right before this. It's not because of your might that God chose you. Uh, it was not because of their righteousness. I said that just before this too. It's not because you as a nation are more righteous than the others around you. It's because he loved them. Um, I heard this uh, illustration. I think Tom Schreiner used it once. And he's talking about God's, um, God's choosing uh, this people. And he, and he says, well, what's the answer to that? Well, if you read Deuteronomy and other, really Genesis and pretty much anywhere in the Bible, it's his love is the answer. And so he tells this illustration of, of this, um, this kid asked his dad, he said, you know what, um, what holds the earth up? And the dad said, well, it sits on the back of a turtle. You know, he just gives his kid that answer. And the kid says, thinks about it for a minute. He says, well, what's holding the turtle up? And the dad says, it's just turtles all the way down. It's just one turtle after another. And so that's kind of, a, it's kind of a little silly, but, but I think the point is when you say, well, why did God do this? Love. Well, what made him love them? It's surely it's because they're good and they're righteous. And they're, no, love. That really is the answer. Just God set his love. I mean, God has this sort of love that he sets on these people. And the answer is love, right? And so um, we, we should revel in that. Uh, they should be reveling in that as they think about his choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how that then comes down towards them. He chose the offspring after them, you above all peoples. Um, Deuteronomy 4.37, I'll just, you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read this. Uh, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of the land of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. So you see the idea of loved and chose. These go together over and over again. Uh, they are inseparable here, especially in this context. They're inseparable. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So we see God's love set on this people. Um, now we do recognize that not every Israelite is chosen in a saving way. We see that, right? Not all Israel is Israel. They are all part of the nation God chose. That's true, but they still need individual conversion. Um, and so you're going to see that many of them, in fact, as time goes on, don't believe and face judgment, just like the nations around them. Uh, which, by the way, is why God is not showing partiality. He shows grace, but it's not, it's not a sinful partiality. Because when these people act like the pagan nations, they get judged like the pagan nations. In fact, I would say even to a higher standard, God ends up holding these people because of the knowledge he's given them. You see over and over again, the punishment that falls on them is very severe because they, they had the revelation of God in their lap. 
Now, God's just in punishing the nations, too, because the nations have a conscience, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, too, right? Um, but, but God is not partial in that. He shows, even though he shows this gracious love, he still judges. Um, so, um, you know, in the New Covenant, we recognize that, that, and this is what the promise of the New Covenant was, that everyone who is truly, an ex- you know, within this covenant is actually fully born again. Now, there's going to be tares among the wheat, right, that externally look that way. But the point is, um, if, you're, if you have the new covenant, you actually have the law written on your heart, Jeremiah says. Uh, so there, there is a little bit of a distinction here. But the point is still the same, that God's love is really uh, a foundational reason for obedience to him. Um, the people needed these hearts. They needed hearts that were not stubborn towards God. That really would be the right response to this loving God. Um, they need ultimately their hearts to be uh, circumcised, which he, I think he's describing here as removal of the stubbornness towards God. A heart that, that instead of resisting God says, you're right, right? Well, obedience, I, we love you. We're not hardened towards you. Uh, that's the type of heart. And, he, and how does he say it? He says they, they need to have their, um, let me read it right here, circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Um, what do you think the people are supposed to think when they hear that? What if I told you circumcise the foreskin of your heart? So circumcision, the, the picture of it comes from the external sign of the old covenant, right? Physical circumcision. But now that's not what he's talking about here, is he? He's saying circumcision of the heart. Is that change. what's the internal change? Yes. It, are you supposed to think that's something that you, I mean, it, can you do heart surgery on yourself and survive? No, right? That's not going to go well. So I think the point is they're supposed to hear this and say, I need that type of heart and I can't do that, right? I need a heart. I need heart surgery that I cannot do to myself. Nonetheless, that is the only right response to what God has done is a heart that is not stubborn towards him that is in fact circumcised towards him. So they should hear that and say, that's right, that's, that's what should happen, but I can't manufacture this. They need this type of surgery. And so Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, I think, if you continue in this book, he says this, and the Lord, so he's, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is going to talk about the people are going to fail to obey God. They are going to fail in a lot of ways. Um... But he gives this hope in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. The answer is they need heart surgery and they need God to do it, right? Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament speaks of the same thing, even though it is a little bit different than what we have happening in the Old Covenant. Um, It gets applied in the New Covenant in this way. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 11 in him, in Christ, you were circumcised. So this happened to you, right? It's passive. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This was not heart surgery they could do to themselves, but it needed to happen, and it was a spiritual surgery. How? By putting off the body of the flesh. By, by How? By the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. So now we have another picture of what's going on in the inward reality. Uh, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, So God's doing this powerful working who raised him from the dead and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That was who you were, right? You were dead with an uncircumcised heart towards God. Just, these are just different pictures of what we're talking about. And so you were dead in the trespasses of your uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. 
We need heart surgery. God has to do it. That's the point. But that is the right response to God's love, isn't it? God has set this sort of love out there. The only right response is to not have a stubborn heart, but a heart that is pliable, loving God. Right? And none of us have that naturally, do we? You see that in kids, the way they respond? You see it in our own hearts? We are hardened very easily. The next point about God's character as motivation to obey is his uniqueness, his power, and his justice. Look at verse 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, the awesome God. Okay, so what is that? What, if you summarize that, what is he saying there? He's the highest, he, the yeah. supreme. He is supreme. There is no one greater and mightier than God, right? That's what he's saying. Um, this God who is not partial and takes no bribe, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So we see the superlative God of gods. He is above all. He's supreme. He is mighty. So these are good reasons to fear and obey God because this is who he is. He is, there, there is no one above him. There's no one else who's going to step in and say, you know what, you actually owe me some allegiance too. Not in the way we owe allegiance to God, right? I mean, God has put authorities over us, that's true. But the reason we owe them a, a allegiance is because why? We owe God allegiance and God has put them over us, right? Um, okay, so uh, this is who God is. He's not partial. He doesn't take a bribe. Uh, I, I think part of the reason that's inserted here, uh, number one, it just tells us, I mean, that's the kind of judge he is. He's just. I think that's the focus. But I think we can also uh, infer from this, this idea that um, if you think about it in terms of their obedience, there's a way you could do obedience in which you try to bribe God. Isn't there? Yeah, it can become a, um, an external, merely facade of obedience outside by which I'm trying to get God to do what I want, whether it's to get me into heaven, whether it's to give me that relationship, whether it's to help me pass this test, whatever it is. But what God is actually saying is, it's not just obedience. Notice that hasn't been the way I've summarized this because I don't think that's what he's saying. The way I've summarized this whole chapter is wholehearted obedience, just to clarify. I mean, in one sense, there's really, that is obedience in one sense. We could just say obedience, but, but we have to make it clear because we know there's a, there's a pseudo form of obedience in which there's just external doing of the thing without the heart behind it. And what, what we need is, is heartfelt obedience. Otherwise, it's like we're bribing God. We think we can do all this external stuff and then he owes us when the reality is the heart should be one of wanting to please God. That's where obedience is not a bribe, but true thanksgiving and joy in God. And that's what we're being called to. So this God is not going to take a bribe. He demands wholehearted obedience. That's the type of God he is. His character should push you towards, I need wholehearted obedience, right? Yeah. Uh, it strikes me what you just said is Satan's accusation about Job was Job was bribing yes. God. But God's point to Satan was, no, he serves me because... Yeah. Yep, that's a good illustration. Yeah, so Job is a great illustration of this, right? In Job, you have this idea of Satan comes along and says, well, he's just, obe he's just doing what you say because you're making his life easy, right? And, then, and God's going to demonstrate the genuineness of the faith that he implanted in Job to show God's power over Satan ultimately, right, um, in that book. So that's, yeah, it's a really good illustration. 
Uh, so, so this is this is who God is. Um, and and notice the thing about the um, the the way they should treat others, uh, the sojourner, the 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 fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. These what what all these people have in common. Let me ask you, what all these people have in common? The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. They need an advocate. They need someone to yeah. Help them. So so they all are are not. Um, we would say self-sufficient in some sense. They are all in danger by being on the fringes of society, right? Because, and because none of them have land of their own. And if you didn't have land, you had a problem, right? Um, and, and so when he's talking about this, he's saying, look, God shows a love for these people in this unique situation and God is just, therefore you need to be just. So God's character, again, is motivating the people's wholehearted obedience. This is a barometer of whether they really fear and love God wholeheartedly, isn't it? Because integrity is kind of the way, if you live with life of integrity, you live that way regardless of whether people are watching you or not. Those people who are not, in, they don't have an integral heart, it's not integrated into what's right, they may do things because they think they can get away with it. Where can you get away with things? The vulnerable. They don't have an advocate. They can't take you to court and get it fixed really easily, right? So this is almost, this is a barometer of where their heart is going to be is one thing I think you're seeing here. And, and God reminds them, look, one, another reason besides my character, another reason you should do this is because you too were once sojourners and I took care of you, right? And you need to respond that way to sojourners in, in your land. But the point is, it's like a barometer showing whether they truly fear God or not. They might be able to get away with taking advantage of some widow, taking her, all her life savings or something, but God sees and knows. And so, so I think that's important to realize um, how we would treat those who are defenseless, um, whether we take advantage of them or not, shows if we really love or fear God. And that's true for Israel, it's true for us. Okay, so what they need to do ultimately is verse 20, hold fast to God. Uh, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So now he's starting to transition more into what God has done, but it's still based on God's character here, because God made that promise, didn't he? Back in Genesis, to Abraham. He was going to make him numerous people. He was going to give them this land. Well, what has happened is they are a numerous people. They're about to go in the land, and so they need to remember that God is faithful to his promise. That's his character. Therefore, you better have wholehearted obedience because he's going to keep being faithful. He'll provide for you, but he's also going to judge if you don't walk his ways. That's true too, right? Okay, so we're going to intentionally be going faster through this last section. Um, that's intentional because I think that was really that was really uh, what I was showing you was the drumbeat of the entire chapter there. But it's still helpful for us to go through and see now there are other reasons he gives besides his character. Okay, that's what we're going to zoom in on now. So we talked about his character as one of the big main motivations for wholehearted obedience. The, the next one is we should keep his commandments. They should keep his commandments. And this would still apply to us uh, because of what he has done. Look at chapter 11 verses 1 through 7. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline. So he's talking to these people. They were children during this whole wilderness wandering, but they were alive and they did see what God had done. 
Okay, so he's talking to this generation. Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. So there is a drumbeat here that he did. I don't know if you're paying attention, but you probably would have heard that over and over again. He did, he did, he did, he did. Okay, he gives three specific illustrations, but the point is, as you look back on what God did, I think his point is going to be that should bring forth wholehearted obedience now, right? So he gives, um, uh, yeah, so anyway, ver- let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least six times he basically says he did or he re- mentions God's great work. So that's my point. That's what he's focusing on here is the past, what God's done. Uh, they need to learn from the past, God's school that he puts them in was to discipline and instruct them. What are some things he taught them? He gives three examples. Well, what's the first example of the past that he gives? The Exodus, right? Redemption. God redeemed you uh, with a mighty outstretched arm. God's, we think of it, The point is kind of like a picture of God's arm. He, he has a strong arm, stronger than the strongest nation that was holding you captive. And he used that might for your good and to judge your enemies. Which again is another way you can think about the whole storyline of the Bible, isn't it? It's God redeeming a people for himself and judging his enemies by his might. So that's what he's doing. Um, so we have the Exodus. Uh, what's the next one? Red Sea. Yeah, so Red Sea. I would, I would throw that in there with that thing too. But yes, so Red Sea, he specifically zooms in on that. He talks about the judgments on Pharaoh. And then Red Sea is kind of a subset of that. What happens in verse uh, 5? Wilderness. Wilderness wanderings, right? And we've already looked at that, so I'm not going to rehash that back. I think, I think it was chapter 8. I can't remember. We rehashed that not too long ago. That, there was, that was a time of instruction for God's people through testing and trials God put them through, through provision that only God could give them, like the manna from heaven. So God is showing his abundant provision. He's putting them in times of trial, and all of this was lessons to be learned about trusting God, wholehearted obedience to God, right? And the fact that God disciplines his children when they don't obey. We see that too in that wilderness testing. Uh, the third thing he points to is two individuals. Who are they? And what happened? Dathan and Abraham. Yeah, and what, do you remember what happened with those guys? What, you're shaking your head. Do you, you want to share? Or, does anyone remember? What did they do? They got burned up and the earth swallowed them up. Yep. They the earth swallows them up. They tried to rebel against Moses. Yeah, that's right. So they rebelled against Moses. And in doing that, they're rebelling against who? God. Because God had clearly put Moses as the leader of his people. And they basically said, who made you boss? They actually know the answer to that. They just don't like the answer to that. Right? They want to be boss. And so they question that and they rebel against God's ordained leader and they find judgment. So God's redeeming power, rescuing you. God's uh, faithfulness to you through trials to test your faith. And God's judgment of people who continue in rebellion. All those realities should push you towards wholehearted obedience to God when you think about that. 
And the same is true for us. We can think back on our trials and how God has sustained us and God's taught us things. That should push us towards obedience to God. We think about our redemption in Christ. That should push us towards wholehearted obedience to God. We think about the danger of those who fall away, right? Who, who we see in Hebrews. Those who maybe outwardly would claim to walk with God and then they, they actually don't. And they reveal that. That, that. that puts a fear in a genuine believer and causes them to persevere. That's a means God uses to accomplish his sovereign will. These should all push us towards wholehearted obedience to God. So let's look at the next one. Obey, keep his commandments because of what he has promised. So now we're looking ahead. This is a longer section. Um, we'll go through it relatively quickly, but he's going he's gonna to outline a lot of stuff about the land for them. Look at verses 8 and 9. And you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now he's really anticipating future blessings, right? That you can see the transition. He went from looking at the past to now he's talking about future blessings, right? Um, look at verses 10 and 12. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So we have this idea of, of kind of like, again, a garden-like existence. God has a special blessing presence among his people in this land. That is what, that, that's what he's calling you to. So this is going to motivate them towards obedience because God is being generous. But also, if God's going to have this special blessing presence, these people have to be his people. They've got to live like his people, right? And, and so that's where he's calling them to um, experience this. When he talks about all the water stuff, the point there, I think, is um, in, in, in Egypt, they would dig these channels to bring water from the Nile, right? You're not going to have this, this in the land. It's going to be 100% rain. And so what is that? That clearly is going to show them God will provide what you need through the rain, right? There's also kind of the implicit though, if you don't, God's not going to give you what you need in this land because you'll be in disobedience to him, right? Um, so they need to obey God. Look at verses 13 through 17. And if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass to your fields, your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived. So here's the danger. And so, so there's kind of also a warning as he looks ahead in, into the land. And uh, let your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. How, okay, think, so what's going on here is uh, Baal and all these other gods of the land, the people that are already in there, they look to them and say, they provide us with rain. So what they're saying, he's saying there's gonna be a temptation. I think what he's saying is there's gonna be a temptation to value what God gives more than God. Wouldn't it be great if we could just have all this stuff and we don't have to give allegiance to this God who's so demanding? But think about it. That is unbelief, isn't it? It's not believing that it is for your good God has given you these laws. That is a temptation throughout the ages to, to exchange God for his stuff because we actually think that is good for us rather than God. Right? 
So they'll be tempted to do that. And then verse 17, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord, that the Lord is giving you. Um, let's see, I'm gonna skip that quote for now. Look down at verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 18 through 25. Um, <clears throat> he's gonna briefly shift here to give him a reminder that from something we've already seen in chapter six. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So what's he saying? In light of all that I'm saying, you need to remember what God says, and look at the next verse, you shall teach them to your children. Talking of them when you sit, sitting in your house, when you're walking in the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that your days and the, and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Let me back up for one second. This idea of holding fast that gets repeated a couple times, it's the same idea of a husband and wife clinging to one another. Isn't it interesting that that's, that's the type of devotion, even more so really, but it's a picture of what God is calling his people to. Which is why later on, when they are disobedient, he compares it to what? Adultery, spiritual adultery, right? Uh, anyway, so he goes on and says, the Lord will dispossess these nations, verse 23, and you will, you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river... Uh, uh, the river Euphrates to the Western Sea, no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Uh, we're not gonna spend a lot of time here, partially because we've already really talked about this. The Shema came up earlier in Deuteronomy 6. Um, but the point is you gotta transmit this to the next generation too. It doesn't just end with you. Every generation is responsible to wholehearted obedience to God. And then he concludes with this. And again, we're not gonna spend a lot of time here because this really just transitions into the next section and it bookends um, the section of individual laws because he's gonna, he's gonna loop back around to it at the end and talk about the blessings and curses there. So that's where we're gonna elaborate on the blessings and curses. But we're gonna read it now just so you see how he kind of brings this section to a close and launches into the next section. Okay, that's all we're doing here, setting up for next time. Verse 26 See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you, here's, here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna talk about this later in Deuteronomy. You shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak, oak of Morah? So the point is, this is going to happen when you go into the land. So again, there's, there's hope here. God's going to bring you into the land. But there's also that warning. You're going to have to keep what he says if you want to stay in it, right? Verse 31, for you are to cross over the Jordan to go in, take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you take possession uh, when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. So we have blessings and curses promised. Here's all I'll say about this section before we conclude here with one brief application. There's no neutral posture towards God. 
Your heart can never be neutral towards God, right? Uh, the, the people around you that are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, I understand that they appear very nice and friendly and all these other things, but the reality is no one's heart is neutral towards the one true living God, right? We, we, we have exchanged God for his stuff and we're worshiping whatever gets us what we want, which is something other than God, or we think God is really for our good and he is our ultimate good. And so we're worshiping, loving, and serving him. Now, I understand, believer, Christian, your heart is not always perfectly set on loving God the way you should. I get that. And the Bible tells us that that's going to be the case. And he tells us it's a life of trusting him. And, and through his spirit, he won't let go of us. So take heart and don't beat yourself up when you sin. But, but realize when you sin, the sign that you belong to Christ is that you're repentant. At some point, there's a desire to say, God, you really are my ultimate good. Your rules really are good. Help me walk in your ways. Continue to, to work in my heart. You've removed that stubbornness. You've made me pliable. Ply away, right? Keep doing what the potter does. Make me more into your likeness. So how this applies to us, this is the concluding thought here. Uh, God still requires wholehearted obedience. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, realize you need heart surgery that you can't do. Cry out to God to do it. Circumcise my heart. Give me a heart that is no longer stubborn towards you. And believers, I would say this, when we want to walk in wholehearted obedience, we do well to follow the same pattern here. Remember who God is. Think of his character, his love, his justice, right? Um, remember what God has done. Think back on your redemption. Think back on the trials he's brought you through. Have a fearful looking back on times of church discipline where God has judged, right? Uh, remember what God has uh, done. I'm sorry, what God will do. Think ahead, um, and let that shape your desires. Look, if, if I really believe and, and long for being in God's perfect place under God's perfect rule, what should that do to my heart right now? I want to have a heart that's fit for that place under your rule. I hate it when my heart is not submitting to your rule. I want as much of a foretaste of that as I can get now. So think often of heaven, of where God is taking you, of this perfect place where every desire you have will not have to be checked. In fact, you will know it is a perfect and good desire because you have a completely satisfied heart in God. Can you imagine what that would be like to never have to question what your, if your desire is good or bad? To never have to sort through your motives because you have a fully renewed heart and body towards the Lord. So, so what should that do? That should make you say, God, I want more of that now, Right? So think of God's character, remember what he has done, and look ahead so that we might have wholehearted obedience to the Lord. Let me pray. God, we do pray for hearts like this. We pray that you would do this among us. Um, any that don't truly know you, perhaps that have been thinking you could be bribed, would you open their hearts? Would you soften their hearts? Would you do heart work on them? God, all of us, when we fall into acting that way, would you free us from the foolishness of it? Would you continue to make us more like your son? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.